Hello everyone and welcome back to the Bridgehead. Thank you for joining us again this week. As some of you may have seen over at thebridgehead.ca, I was in Russia for a couple of weeks and so I've been uh, doing a lot of work producing uh, some essays and research on exactly what I found there. I was there to sort of research the resurgence of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the return to a lot of pre-Russian revolution uh, traditions and, and even institutions. And so I'll be talking more a lot about that later. I'll probably end up talking about it on the show as well. But uh, those of you who, who check out the blog regularly at thebridgehead.ca will have seen I've already written a few blog posts and, and I'm working on, on quite a few more. In the meantime, uh, the interview that, that I had uh, and that I have for you today is one that I've actually been trying to get for quite a long time. He's a very hard man to track down. He actually had multiple interviews the day uh, that we managed to speak, but I was really thrilled to be able to talk to Sir Roger Scruton. Now, any of you who are interested in traditionalism will have heard of Sir Roger Scruton before because the breadth of his work is so enormous that he's, he's covered nearly everything. In 1980, he first wrote a book called The Meaning of Conservatism. He himself became uh, a conservative in 1968 when he was in France and he was seeing uh, left-wing students trash things and smash things. And he said really in that moment he realized that he was not on their side and that he wanted to work to conserve, to preserve, to protect Western civilization and the Western inheritance rather than uh, tear it all down or burn it all down. And so a lot of his thoughts on conservatism and cultural preservation and cultural confidence emerged in his book, The Meaning of Conservatism. In 1986, he also wrote a book uh, called Sexual Desire, where he tried to really get to the, the heart of, of what sexual desire is from a philosophical perspective. That was, of course, uh, quite a controversial book because, uh, well, quite frankly, he has a very traditionalist perspective on sexuality, and that is not a perspective that's very welcome these days. In 1997, he wrote a book called The Aesthetics of Music, uh, which I love. There actually are some lectures on YouTube where he talks about music. Um, he spends a lot of time calling pop music garbage and explaining what we've lost, very similar to Alan Bloom in The Closing of the American Mind, where Alan Bloom bemoans the loss of essentially musical taste and, and, and the fact that so many young people haven't actually developed a taste for classical music and these other genres that get completely ignored simply because uh, those aren't the cultural waters that they're swimming in, you know, what, what do they play in the mall and downtown and, and at virtually every type of event, they don't play the kinds of music that, uh, that Sir Roger Scruton advocates for or that Alan Bloom advocated for. In 2014, he wrote another very interesting book, How to Be a Conservative. Of course, uh, that's an especially interesting discussion in Europe where conservatives often uh, get trashed as, well, right-wing fascists. Some of you may remember the interview I had with Dr. Gabrielle Kuby, uh, the German sociologist, a few weeks back, where she talked about how uh, her views, which would have been considered very boring, very traditional, very normal, a very short time ago, now have her actually being referred to as a Nazi by plays that are being hosted in Berlin. So there, there's so much that I could say about 
Sir Roger Scruton, the, the breadth of his work is, is quite enormous. He's actually written quite a bit of fiction as well. I can't say I've read his fiction. I've only read uh, his nonfiction and listened to a lot of his lectures. But if the quality of his fiction is, is anywhere close to the quality of his nonfiction, he's written quite literally dozens of books. Uh, it's very difficult to narrow it down. Those few that I mentioned are just on some defining topics, but he's written on everything from uh, modern philosophy to uh, 2014's book, The Soul of the World, uh, the 2015's book, Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, Thinkers of the New Left. But then uh, fiction-wise, he actually wrote a book a year after he wrote his sort of magnus opus on conservative conservatism, pardon me, called A Fortnight's Anger. And then uh, recently, uh, he wrote Notes from the Underground in 2014 and then disappeared in 2015. So again, I can't claim to have read his fiction books myself. Uh, I do plan to pick up The Disappeared after he really, um, uh, I think, made quite an effective pitch for it in the interview that you're about to listen to. Uh, but yeah, uh, so definitely check that out. Go to his website. Also go to thebridgehead.ca. And uh, let me know what you think of this interview on traditionalism, because it's a topic I've become increasingly interested in. Uh, those of you who follow along with this show will, will remember that I talked about this with Douglas Murray uh, two shows back. The last show was with uh, William F. Buckley's son, Christopher Buckley. The show before that was with Douglas Murray. But I had quite a few conversations on this uh, last year as well, especially uh, with Rod Dreyer of the American Conservative on his new book, uh, the Benedict Option, as well as with Anthony Eslin on his book, Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding American Culture. And so traditionalism is a, is a very, very hot topic and a very specific uh, set of circles these days. And I think it's something that we should be paying attention to because I really do think that traditionalism is one of uh, those things that combats the alt-right. We have a, a rise in far-right thinking that involves blaming the other <coughs> that involves uh, not looking back to our own heritage, to our own religious heritage, towards our own architectural or artistic heritage, but instead says uh, the fault for the decline of Western civilization li uh, lies exclusively on the migrants, etc. So I, I really think traditionalism is something that should be explored in more depth because it has this immense capacity, I think, to satisfy a lot of the deep questions that are being asked by today's generation. So uh, you don't need to hear any more on this from me, though. I hope you enjoy this interview with the great Sir Roger Scruton from Great Britain. My work, I mean, essentially, I've identified myself always as a writer and a philosopher, and my, my work has been devoted to articulating a particular vision of uh, modern society and Western civilization, uh, which uh, I've seen as being under threat in so many ways, but also as containing uh, so much of value that it's, it's a, as it were, a, the duty of someone like me to try and express that thing. You have said that, that you became a conservative after witnessing the chaos and the riots of the, the May 1968 student protests in France. How, how yes. did that really come about? Well, I was there in Paris. You know, um, I, I was I'd been teaching in a, a French university for a year prior to that, so I was, you know, uh, had a whole network of friends, and so and that's where I would tend to be. Uh, 
Well, it's very interesting, and this is one of the subjects that I wanted to delve into uh, with you, was the subject of, of cultural confidence. I'm sure you know that there's been a, a lot of uh, European journalists writing on this. I recently interviewed Douglas Murray on the program, and he talked right. a, a lot about cultural confidence in his recent book, The Strange Death of Europe. And this is something you've commented on a lot as well, about forgetting our cultural heritage, forgetting yes. the roots of civilization. Uh, especially for an audience, can you kind of explain what your conceptualization of, of cultural confidence is and why we've lost it? Well, uh, uh, gosh, I mean, I, I'm not so sure that we have lost it, not entirely. I mean, there are people like me and, and Douglas who are as confident as we've ever been. We're, I mean, as confident <laughs> in the things that we value. Uh, but uh, it is true that that the mass of, of uh, educated people have lost uh, something. I mean, the education system no longer emphasizes what distinguishes Western civilization from the rest of the world uh, and certainly doesn't emphasize the things that we can value in it. Uh, and there is also a growing, what I call a culture of repudiation among teachers and media uh, and the self-defining intellectuals who who want to cast off the burden of their inheritance without having anything else that they want to pick up in place of it. And this is something, you know, it's, it's something that's very difficult to explain in a way, but it has something to do with the loss of our inherited religion uh, and something to do with the fact that to, to stand up for anything always requires more courage than most people have. Right, and, and that's what I, I kind of wanted to get a, a bit to the root of, which is that it is a very hard thing to explain, but the way you just worded it is very interesting, the burden of our heritage. G.K. Chesterton always mm. talked about how we don't just repudiate our forebears because they did bad things, we do so because their courage and, and, and their love and their work also makes us feel very, very small, and we hate that. That's right. Yeah. Uh, what would your perception of that be, simply because both you and Douglas are very similar in that you point back to the Judeo-Christian traditions as something that preserved a part of the culture that now seems to either being overlooked or lost entirely? Yes. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, everything that is valuable is in the end threatened because, you know, uh, we are... It's, it's going to be as mortal as we are. Uh, and uh, when people cease to defend their inheritance or, or find it for the reasons that Cheston, say, Cheston says a burden, uh, then it, it is without anything to defend it. And, th and therefore it begins to corrode and wash away. But, uh, you know, I, I was brought up to believe, as um, most of my generation were, that if you've inherited something good, it isn't yours to enjoy. It is your duty to pass it on. And that's the hard bit. And it's a duty that people obviously would rather escape than take seriously, like so many of their duties. And I think that's what we're seeing in our education system. You know, My teachers at school and at university felt that they were under an obligation to hand on what they had inherited because it was something inherently good in itself. Uh, and but it meant a lot of work. It meant combating the stupidity of young people in order to get into their heads that there's something more important than themselves. You know that that takes a lot of courage and and determination. And uh, at, a, at a certain point, as a generation of teachers emerged, 
who just felt found that you know didn't have the impetus to do that. It was just not their thing. One of the things that you've often pointed to, I listened to several of your lectures on this subject, was uh, the subject of beauty and how because our culture no longer knows how to define that and has lost a true philosophical conceptualization of what beauty is, that we've forgotten how to make beautiful things. And that struck me as there's a there's a it's very interesting because inside the traditionalist movement in North America, certainly, and I know in, in certain European countries as well, part of this traditionalist rebellion is saying modern architecture, modern buildings are garbage and, you know, old buildings are beautiful. Yes. How would you how would you make that relatable to, to to a general audience? When you say that we've forgotten beauty and we don't care enough about yes. beauty anymore, how would we convey that idea? It's a very difficult idea to convey because there was so much propaganda being made, uh, especially by modernists in architecture, uh, for the view that somehow everything can be done anew. You can get rid of the all traditional ways of of, of building, of, of harmonizing, of decorating, and so on, uh, and just produce these sterile geometrical shapes, uh, and uh, and that this is somehow the voice of the future. Uh, and um, there's a lot of money to be made <laughs> by persuading mm -hmm. people to allow you to do that. Which have, uh, and I think you know, let's face it, in Canada, it's been a disaster because you had a very fragile inheritance of uh, of architecture. Yes, few little places. Uh, which have um, beautiful downtown areas, but most of it just swept away, and um, and the new thing that replaces it is 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 nothing more than a drawing board engineering, uh, which produces temporary buildings, square blocks of glass and and steel, which will be swept away in their turn. So you you no longer have the idea of a beautiful settlement. A town just becomes a kind of temporary shelter put up by multinational businesses uh, and um, in that in those conditions people can't find in their environment anything beautiful at all unless they get out of the city altogether into the into the wild woods of the uh, and, and lakes of the of the further country um, so I think that you know it has been a, a great trouble for Canadians it's one reason why they find it so difficult to identify with their cities um, but that's not only problem because you know beauty is not just a matter of architecture mm -hmm. it's it, it's something which in, inhabits our entire life it, it it's what shapes our taste in music in in interior decoration in painting and of course mo above all in poetry and and the written word and that's where i think uh, the big defense the major defense of beauty has to occur you have to show people that in the things that really matter to them, that are closest to them, for instance, their use of words, their gestures, their way of looking at each other, their way of dressing, of being close to each other. In all these things, there is a distinction between doing it right, uh, getting the approval and the endorsement of others, which means doing something beautiful, and doing it wrong, which means alienating everything around you. Yeah, when I was t talking to Douglas Murray a, a couple of weeks ago, he said that one of the things we have to be very careful with uh, in, in North America and simply and, and certainly Europe, we were talking about his book, is that when bad people are the only ones willing to advocate for good ideas, 
we are going to be in for trouble. And he was talking about tribalism. And it struck me in, in your 2006 book, Arguments for Conservatism, you actually lay out and you make the argument that, that humans have territorial loyalty, that they're going to be more loyal to the local than to the, the national or the international. And you said this before the identitarian movements started to sweep Europe like they have in the last five or ten years, or you could argue since the, uh, the 2015 migrant crisis. So when you see things unfolding uh, that you already laid out for anybody to read if they'd wanted to, what's your response to all of this? And, and how do you suggest we have less heat and more light? Uh, good question. I, I mean, I've always assumed that... Uh, that uh, it's not for me uh, to change the world. All I can do is um, record the truth as I understand it and subject it to criticism and argument and see if we can come to consensus. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it does, for, for, for there to be genuine change and genuine resistance, there has to be more than one person. And it's very difficult to ensure that, ensure that people will, will uh, understand what you're trying to say. But... Uh, you know, um, it is a general truth. I think that people, in people, only wake up to a situation when it's too late to remedy it. This is something that Hegel said once. You know that the owl of Minerva only flies uh, in the dusk, right. uh, and uh, I think we're in that condition. People are waking up to some very important truths about the nature of human communities and what is necessary in order to survive and, and propagate. And they're waking up to it uh, at, the, at the 11th hour. 11th hour is, by definition, almost too late. And I noticed, I, I also yeah. sp I spoke with, uh, with, with uh, Peter Hitchens several times on this subject, and I noticed that, that Douglas uh, kept on saying, well, we need to f find a way forward. We need to, to fight for what we have left. And, and uh, uh, Peter Hitchens was more or less of, of the opinion that he should be getting on writing uh, Great Britain's eulogy and that young people should move. Um, and there's obviously a dispositional difference there that plays into those two different analyses. But who yeah. do you think is right? Well, uh, uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to be on Douglas's side in this. I, I, I believe that in general one has an obligation to be optimistic, to find, to find a solution, even if it's a compromise with things that one doesn't approve of. Uh, it's uh, um, to, to relay a message of despair doesn't help anyone really, uh, and um, to say that it's all over uh, and and that young people should move is great if you think there's somewhere they they can move to, but everywhere is <laughs> in the same condition. You know, okay, uh, when it comes to the the migration problem, yeah, you can move to Russia; they'll never have an immigration crisis. Uh, for obvious <laughs> reasons, but uh, who wants to move to Russia? So I'm getting that that your your view is is a dimmer one. Yeah, well, I th my view is that you've got to fight for what you have, uh, and you have to set an example. You can only do it locally and among people you know. But uh, if you give up fighting, then of course you will go down with the rest of of mankind. But um, nevertheless, uh, you know, all is not lost. Yes. So one of the things I, I wanted to ask you, because you spend a lot of time speaking with young people and, and giving your lectures, and I know that among traditional circles, especially your work is extremely popular, and that as 
the sort of new movements have risen up. And there, there's been sort of two versions of rebellion among young European people, right? There was the people who take the identitarian route, and then there's yeah. the people who are saying to their parents, you had no right to give this up on our behalf. Uh, you yeah. have the obligation, which you mentioned earlier, to pass this on to us. And they start to seek out uh, work like your own. They start to read people like Douglas Murray and Peter Hitchens, who told me that he actually has many young people that are, are contacting him after reading, say, The Abolition of Britain and talking about how that really resonated with them. So when you talk to a lot of young people and you realize that there is a recognition among largely secular young people that something was given up on their behalf that is a part of them, that, that says something about them that, yeah. they, that they have to know because their story is incomplete unless they do know it. How have those conversations given you a sense of either pessimism or optimism? Oh, uh, no, I, I, I think I get a, a lot of very positive feedback from young people of that kind um, saying that that um, you know that I'm defining something for them that they were had been looking for and, and that they're always very grateful because uh, nobody can live without an ideal of some kind and the closer that ideal is to something near at hand and actual uh, the, the, the better because then they, they can say look here is something I can work to make part of my life and not just be something on the distant horizon. So uh, I think young people do respond very much. If, as soon as you articulate what it is that you love about your country and its traditions, uh, they will be prepared to uh, to join in. And I, 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 this is very encouraging. Chesterton once said that tradition is so strong that young men will dream of things they have never seen. Yes. And I always thought that, that defined it, it, it quite beautifully. When young people approach you and say, how do we start re-engaging with our traditions, what's the advice that you give them? Well, um, there are plenty of things to re-engage with all around us. Uh, my, my own thought is that you should look for the community activities which are yours, which are natural to you, which are part of your society, what, the things that you, the discussions and debates that you might have in college, the books that you might read together, and of course the, then there are the churches which stand waiting to be filled. You know, there's, there's so much that people can uh, engage with, which is still there, uh, and of course it means, first of all, in overcoming the embarrassment of, of um, making the first gesture. Now, one of the questions I really wanted to ask you is when people look at the cultural decay, when they look at the loss of cultural confidence, there's fingers pointed all over the place. And there are, there are people giving good answers. There are people giving bad answers. There are people giving complex answers like Dr. Jordan Peterson. What yes. would your answer to that question be? Obviously, the finger can't point in one direction, but uh, since the, the, let's say, the 60s, when you first uh, became a conservative, what would you say contributed most to the, the cultural decay and lack of cultural confidence that we all face? Well, at the time, uh, I, I, um, I suppose I blamed, in particular, the French intellectuals of the 1960s. I, I blamed, um, well... Uh, I, I didn't want, don't want to go back as far as Sartre and de Beauvoir, but <laughs> uh, but the people like Michel Foucault uh, and um, all the his entourage, Lacan, and and the people who attended his seminars uh, and so on. The, these were I thought were highly destructive, almost demonic people whose uh, 
whose one obsession was to rid the world of the bourgeoisie, you know, uh, and to bring up young people to hate what was all around them. Uh, and I, I think that became a kind of disease which spread through universities, especially in America. Most French people, after a while, got got bored with them and said, you know, recognized that they were just uh, posturing narcissists. But um, American professors, for some reason, took them, went on taking them seriously right into our day. Now, I think they have been to blame for, for a great deal of the loss of any sense of an intellectual heart for the conservative cause. When young people are looking at ways to engage, you said engage with communities. So when, we, but when we're talking about literature, poetry, where should people start? And in my conversations uh, with a lot of people, one of the difficulties is that if you weren't raised on the classics, it's very difficult to start. Um, yes. And so how would you advise people to sort of, you know, dip their feet in the water and carry on from there? It is a, a difficult question. I think... Um you know, if you've been raised in in the, uh, in the one or other of the churches, especially in the Roman Catholic Church or the Anglican Church, you would have certainly been uh, familiar with the Bible and the Gospels, but also with a with a traditional a tradition of thinking about those things, which mm -hmm. takes uh, takes in the classics along the way. And I think this you know makes it very much easier to think about our current situation and. Um, you know, and you could be a leftist of guys like Charles Taylor to take one of your thinkers. But if you have that upbringing, it enables you nevertheless to grasp the complexity of, issue, of the issues and why it is that, that there is still a real life tradition to be, to be rescued. And then uh, one final question is I've, you know, so your, your books are, are, cover many different topics from sexuality, conservative and politics, philosophy. Um, if people want to engage with your work, for, for let's say for young people, let's say for people under the age of, of, of 35, where mm. would you suggest they start with your work and engaging with your work to better understand the world around them? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I mean, I, I do write fiction as far as uh, you know, difficult philosophy and so on. Um, but I, I will say... One always wants to sell one's most recent books, of course. <laughs> but uh, um, I did write a book called The Soul of the World, which is an attempt to put my philosophy in a way which is both serious and opens the door to, to uh, the rediscovery of, of a religious way of looking at things. And I would think that that, that could be very helpful to young people. Uh, uh, there's a novel called The Disappeared, which uh, really... As an attempt to to express the uh, the or to convey the situation of our country and countries like ours under the pressure of uh, of mass migration and so on uh, and the difficulty of holding on to things in that situation, but it's a, a novel with a kind of optimistic and redemptive conclusion, which uh, is well, I know that young people who really find it quite gripping. So there's something that they could start with. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us.
Well, thank you for inviting me. It's very interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a show brought to you by Total Rentals, and it was an interview with Sir Roger Scruton. I would really encourage those of you who are interested in traditionalism and interested really in the foundational uh, philosophic concepts of beauty and how we go forward and cultural preservation and what we've lost, to check out a lot of his work. It really is quite magnificent. So you can go to SirRogerScruton.com to check that out. For a lot more blog posts, I, I post columns several times a day over at thebridgehead.ca. I try to keep people uh, caught up with what's going on the front lines of the culture wars. And we will have another radio show for you with another interview next week. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next week.